everyone, you're listening to The Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. We've got a very interesting programme for you today. There's a gentleman called Tom Oren from New South Wales. He's an ex-principal teacher from the public system who's taken a great interest in the constitutional question of state aid. And he's read the book that we wrote on contempt of court, and he's written an article which has been published in the Independent Australia, which is an online website of independent media. And this article has gone the rounds already. The Save Our Schools people have put it on Twitter, and uh, we thought that our readers would like to hear it. We have told you what happened with our High Court case of 1981, but this is Tom Oren's view of it. And Oliver and him are going to read it for us. It is press release 953 and it's available at our website at www.adogs.info. But over to Oliver and him. Thank you, Jean. A 1981 High Court decision to allow the funding of religious schools was a bad move that fractured Australia's education system, writes Tom Oren. Australia's Constitutional Convention was a series of meetings held between 1891 and 1898 to design a constitution for the proposed federation. It set the stage upon which our nation's future was to be built. After intense discussion, a draft constitution was approved and the Commonwealth of Australia was created. In 1901. Today, few people realize that our constitution was heavily influenced by both the US constitution and the secular enlightenment movement that had influenced it. As a result, one of its main aims was to separate church and state. One brief section of the constitution, section 116, acknowledges that aim. It says, the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion, and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. Like many laws, this one is prohibitive. It was not meant to encourage certain behaviours. Its intention was to prevent the Commonwealth from doing anything that might establish any religion, impose any religious observation practice on the population, prohibit the free exercise of any religion, and exclude any person from any Commonwealth office on the basis of their religion. The last three prohibitions are pretty clear, but the first one has proven to be somewhat ambiguous and therefore controversial. That's because it's unclear exactly what the Constitutional Convention meant by not making any law for establishing any religion. On its own, the term establishing is ambiguous. Does it mean setting up from scratch? or does it mean further establishing a religion that's already established? And does any mean all religions in general or any particular religion? It's impossible to say from the words alone. To understand what they mean, we have to go back and see what the people at the Constitutional Convention were aiming at. Religion and education. Immediately after Federation, neither the Commonwealth nor the states funded religious schools, mainly because Catholic schools refused to use the secular readers prescribed by the various governments. They insisted on readers that were approved by the Catholic Church, so they remained proudly independent and self-funded, and good on them for that. But half a century later, the Catholic system found itself in trouble. 
Some of its schools were literally falling apart. So they asked the Commonwealth government for help. The then Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, begrudgingly agreed to provide them with limited emergency funding. That was the first crack in the dam wall. Soon after, the church increased pressure on the government to fund the upgrading of science labs. And after a Catholic school in Goulburn closed its doors and told students to turn up at the local public high school, which naturally did not have room for them, the government relented and the crack widened. Fast forward to 1972, when Gough Whitlam was trying to win a federal election and saw an opportunity to gain the Catholic vote by promising modest, ongoing funding for Catholic schools. That's when the floodgates really opened up. After that, every religion decided to get in on the app, and the Catholic Church redoubled its efforts. Today, Commonwealth funding has reached a point where some Catholic schools receive more public funds than their public school neighbours. Challenging state aid. Not, not that the legality of all this funding went unchallenged. In the 1960s and 70s, many Australians were convinced that access to free, high-quality and secular public education was the key to a progressive and egalitarian society. More importantly, they thought that funding religious schools was illegal under Section 116. So in the mid-1960s, a group called Defence of Government Schools, or DOGS, took on the might of the religious sector mounted a high court challenge to Commonwealth state aid. The only problem was that challenges to the high court have to be mounted by an individual or individuals, so someone had to volunteer to step up to the plate. That person was Ray Nilsson, who took out a mortgage to fund it. Along with Ray's sister and brother-in-law, Sylvie and Bob Child, who sacrificed their life savings and their chance to build a new home. But even that wasn't enough. The group also needed support of any state attorney general. However, one finding one group difficult because few state politicians were keen to pick a fight with the Catholic Church. That search took from 1964 to 1979, and eventually the Liberal Attorney General of Victoria, Vernon Wilkerts, a supporter of state aid, came to the party. The cost of that delay almost sent dogs broke, but somehow they kept going. However, there was another catch. If the plaintiffs lost, not only would they have to pay their own nickel bills, but they might have to pay the costs of the Catholic Church, and that meant the prospect of losing everything or going to jail. In the end, the case cost dogs around half a million dollars, which was paid for in blood, sweat, and tears. The funds came in dribs and drabs from far and right, wide. There were hundreds of fundraising events, some donated a portion of their earnings. Lance Hutchinson, Secretary for Victoria's Dogs, painted roofs to pay the final 28,000 to the dogs' legal team. Others included Richard and Margaret, or Jean Dealey, Kath Taylor, Secretary of New South Wales Dogs, and George Wilson and Bruce Ross, both from Tasmania. The NSW Teachers Federation, the Victorian Council of State School Organisations, the Victorian Technical Teachers and Primary Teachers Unions. Even some Catholic families donated. But as the case dragged on, raising funds become, became more and more difficult, especially since the Catholic Church threatened to sanction anyone who supported dogs. The main reason for that huge bill was the delaying tactics used by the religious lobby. Just the trial of facts, the pretrial about whether religious schools were actually religious, took 26 days at $5,000 a day because the religious sector called 49 witnesses 
compared to the dog's five and tendered 116 documents. The idea was to bankrupt dogs before the case got to trial. The twin threats of legal and personal annihilation would have taken the win out of most sales, but Ray, Sylvie, and Bob maintained a steady course, and eventually the case made it to court. From bad to worse, in 1981, the High Court overruled the challenge and Dogs was ordered to pay costs. Staunch to the end, Ray Nelson and Lance Hutchinson said they would rather go to jail than pay the church's costs, and the Catholic Church decided not to pursue them. It was a small price to pay for the rivers of gold that would follow. Since then, many have questioned that decision. But why? There are several reasons. Was there judicial conflict of interest? Was the Constitution misinterpreted? Did the Catholic Church make false claims? And contrary to the Constitution, did the ruling actually establish religion as a major player in Australian education? And Kim will take us from there. Thanks, Oliver. Judicial conflict of interest. Early in the history of the challenge and prior to his appointment to the High Court, Justice Keith Aiken, a conservative Protestant, had agreed to act on behalf of the religious sector and had rejected two similar requests from dogs. It was clear where his sympathies lay. However, he did not reveal his conflict of interest. The dog's legal team had to do that. In a perfect world, Aiken would have rescued himself from all the liberations and from the final decision, but he made a point of concurring with it. One wonders what influence he had on his fellow judges and also the schools attended by the children and grandchildren of the other judges. Misinterpretation, any religion. Instead of interpreting the words any religion as any and all religions, the High Court interpreted them as a particular religion. And in doing so, it turned the intention of the Constitution Conventions on its head by saying that Section 116 only applied to the establishment of a particular religious school or system. It implied that it was perfectly acceptable for the Commonwealth to fund all religious schools. What the Constitutional Convention had designed as a barrier between church and state became a highway that enshrined funding for religious schools. In other words, the decision literally established religion in both education and society, even though the minutes of the Constitutional Convention demonstrated a clear intention to prohibit it. For example, in one debate on the 2nd of March, 1898, Edmund Barton, a later HC justice, stated, you have only two powers of spending money, and a church could not receive the funds of the Commonwealth under either of them. Despite this, the full bench forbade the use of the minutes as evidence. Justice Lionel Murphy wrote a strong letter of dissent about that decision. He said, in part, it is consistent to read section 116 as prohibiting only laws for establishing one of religion or church because that permits laws for establishing any number of religions or churches. Such a reading trivializes the section. Giving the potential for bias, one wonders what influence Judge Aiken might have had on that decision, especially since the High Court now accepts that evidence of intent is vital for interpreting the law. Misinterpretation, that word, establish. The court also focused on a very narrow definition of the word establish. It took it to mean establish a new religion rather than further establish an existing religion or religions. That unfortunate choice of word proved to be a time bomb. To some, it meant not funding any religious activity, especially education, while to others, it meant not funding the establishment of a specific new religion. 
The only way to prove what it meant was to refer back to the Constitutional Convention, but of course that had been prohibited. Religious schools do not teach religion. Part of the defense of the Catholic Church was that its schools were no more religious than public schools and therefore that they posed no threat whatsoever to the secular nature of education. However, it is irrefutable that Catholic schools spend a significant amount of time teaching religious beliefs, traditions and ceremonies, for example, rehearsals for confirmations and the Stations of the Cross. Moreover, in one Catholic school I know of, the HCIE coordinator was asked to monitor the teaching of history and geography. Several teachers openly admitted, oh, we don't teach that. We use the time to teach religion instead. I doubt that this was an isolated case. However, it might be best to let the Catholic Church speak for itself. On 16 September 2022, the following statement was found on the website of a random Catholic school. But I have, but I have replaced its name and sent to protect its anonymity. It demonstrates the importance of religious practice. Statement reads, our school places significant emphasis on the celebration of liturgy in the community. Liturgy is a central part of the rhythm of the school year with important times such as the beginning and end of the school year being marked by liturgical celebrations. Other significant school days and events such, such as Saint, insert Saint Day, retreats and reflection days have liturgy at the heart of the celebration. In addition to the calendar of the school year, our school is also attuned to the liturgical seasons of the church's year. Liturgical events mark the significant days and seasons of the church's year, such as Ash Wednesday, Holy Week, and the seasons of Advent, Lent, and Easter. Our ultimate proof of the High Court's error, the best evidence of all that the High Court ruling was wrong, is the answer to a simple question. Has the public funding of religious schools helped in establishing any religion in Australia? There is only one answer to that. Yes, it has led to a mushrooming of fee-paying religious schools of dozens of different faiths, they have split community, these have split communities and segregated children on the basis of religion and income, the exact opposite of what the founding fathers intended. The worst fears of dogs have been realised. Australia is a more divided and less egalitarian country because of that decision. Even if we accept that funding for religious schools does not breach the intent of the Constitutional Convention, our founding fathers would roll over in their graves to discover that three in every five dollars of Commonwealth funding now go to private schools. And they would die another death if they saw the amount of funding that goes to elite private schools. More recently, overturning the dog's challenges has led to a plethora of religious universities which take advantage of the Commonwealth's generous tertiary funding arrangements, especially if they can attract a large number of first-year students, regardless of their chances of success. The Australian Catholic University has benefited greatly from this, but one university stands out above all the rest the Australian campus of the US-based and Catholic Notre Dame University. One must ask why an American university would be interested in setting up in Australia. The answer is obvious, to take the opportunity to get as much money as possible from the Australian government to help establish Catholicism in Australia. Back to you, Jean. Well, that's a very interesting outlook on it all, isn't it? Um, I like that he went back to the original conventions and quoted Deacon. But there were a lot of other people, particularly Higgins and before him in Tasmania, Inglis Clark, who was uh, the person who put Section 116 into the Constitution. The Founding Fathers knew exactly what they were doing and they didn't want to have a state aid return to the private religious schools and they were prepared to talk about that. We'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back to some more very interesting articles that have appeared in the last week. Mm -hmm. 
Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and uh, I hope that you found that a very interesting story. Uh, We've told it many times on this program, but it's a different uh, take on it. If you want to find out more about what happened with the Dogs High Court case, there is a whole section of our website on it with a number of articles and also criticisms of the decision of the High Court. And you can also find uh, Lionel Murphy's full dissent, which is sitting there for future cases and future high courts to look at. And you can find it at our website at www.adogs.info. But the other big issue, of course, in education is inequalities. And over in Western Australia, the Teachers' Union have uh, come up with a very interesting article, which Sol is now going to read for us. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. They have written that inequitable school funding creates inequitable school outcomes. State School Teachers Union of Western Australia writes that the Australian Education Union is calling for a renewed focus on increasing public school funding following the release of the interim report of the Productivity Commission's review of the National Schools Reform Agreement, or NSRA for short. The review finds the current NSRA has weaknesses that undermine its effectiveness in lifting student outcomes and that promoting equity in Australian schools remains a key challenge, AEU Deputy Federal President Meredith Peace said. While the review was prevented from considering funding, there can be no doubt the current NSRA is failing to meet its goals because of the deliberate underfunding of Australia's public schools by the previous federal government. Currently, every public school student in Australia is missing out on an average of $1,800 in funding every year. An overwhelming majority of public schools across the country have been left without the minimum funding required by the standards set under the Australian Education Act. It is no surprise that Australian students are struggling and that there are problems delivering an equitable education system when inequity was deliberately baked into the arrangements. We agree with the review's suggested focus for the next agreement, including addressing education workforce shortages, the unsustainably high workloads experienced by teachers, principals and education support staff, and student wellbeing and student equity. However, these outcomes can only be delivered if public schools are funded to do so. The NSRA is a foundation for bilateral agreements between the Commonwealth and the states and territories, setting out goals for improved student outcomes and minimum funding contributions. The Productivity Commission recently completed a review of the existing NSRA, which is due to expire at the end of 2023. Negotiations for new school funding arrangements between the states and territories and the Commonwealth are expected to commence before the end of the year. The National Schools uh, Reform Agreement 
it goes back, I think, as far as the Gillard government. But once the uh, coalition got into power, then it was just open slather for the private schools, particularly the elite private schools. And the funding arrangements in Australian education at the moment, as far as the rest of the world are concerned, are nothing short of um, ridiculous, really. Uh, if you want to have a, uh, a democratic society of any kind, it really is uh, just um, a favouritism of the wealthy, a bit like the tax cuts that uh, the Labor Party has inherited and uh, which has recently been given and then taken away in the, in the United Kingdom. But we certainly live in very interesting times. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, uh, you're listening to the Dogs Program. And uh, Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools has been keeping an eye on the coalition and the uh, shadow minister, Mr. Tudge. Well, we know Mr. Tudge from when he was uh, a minister before, Minister of Education. And uh, Trevor has written an interesting article, More Fudges from Mr. Tudge. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. The Shadow Minister for Education, Alan Tudge, has again fudged figures on school funding and school results. He's a serial offender here. He regularly resorted to fudging data while Minister for Education to denigrate Australia's school performance. His fudges obscure the fact that school funding increases have heavily favoured private schools for the last two decades. Writing in The Australian on the 17th of September, Tudge claimed that school funding per student adjusted for inflation increased by 60% since 2000. This is far from the truth. The real figure is less than half this, and the increase for private schools was 2.5 times that for public schools. Funding per student in public and private schools adjusted for inflation increased by 24% between 2001-2002 and 2019-2020. Funding per private school student increased by 48% compared to only 18% in public schools. Funding for private schools increased by $4,153 per student compared to $2,317 per student in public schools. These figures are drawn from the report on government services but are adjusted for incompatibilities between the data for public and private schools, whereby book entry items, user cost of capital and depreciation, payroll tax and school transport are included in the funding figures for public schools but not for private schools. As a result, private schools have considerably more resources than public schools. Data published by ACARA show that the total income per student in independent schools was 52% higher than in public schools in 2020, while in Catholic schools it was 11% higher. The total income per student in public schools was $16,000, compared to $24,300 in independent schools and $17,800 in Catholic schools. Tudge claimed that school results have declined despite the increase in funding. If his claim had any validity, they point to the failure of private schools to uphold standards despite their favourable funding. 
research published by the Australian Council for Educational Research show that the biggest declines in Australia's results in the OECD PISA were in Catholic and independent schools. Reading, maths and science scores in PISA fell by more than in public schools between 2009 and 2018. The average fall in public school results across the three domains was 17 points compared to 24 points in both Catholic and independent schools. To the extent we can rely on the PISA results, and there are question marks around their reliability, this suggests that billions in taxpayer funding is being wasted on privileged private schools. Tudge also fudged Australia's school results for highlighting the decline in PISA results for 15-year-old students and ignoring improving results in Year 12. The percentage of the estimated Year 12 population that completed Year 12 increased from 68% in 2001 to 79% in 2018, although there is an unexpected drop-off in 2019, which partially recovered to 76% in 2020. The proportion of 20 to 24-year-olds who attained a Year 12 certificate or equivalent increased from 71% in 2001 to 85% in 2020. OECD data also shows that Australia has one of the larger increases in the OECD in the proportion of 25 to 34-year-olds who attained at least an upper secondary education. It increased by 19 percentage points from 71% in 2001 to 90% in 2019. Tudge's fudges ignore and distract from the major challenges facing Australian education, namely the extent of disadvantage and the large achievement gaps between advantaged and disadvantaged students at all levels of schooling. For example, the report on government services revealed that nearly 28% of students from low socioeconomic status families did not complete Year 12 in 2020, while 41% of Year 7 and 8 Indigenous students do not make it to Year 12. In 2020 NAPLAN report, it shows that 24% of Year 9 students from low educated parents and 31% of Indigenous students did not achieve the minimum reading standard. In addition, the students of low educated parents are about four years behind those of highly educated parents in reading in year nine, while Indigenous students are over five years behind. The effect of Tudge's Fudges is to divert attention from the funding needs of public schools. Over 80% of low SES, Indigenous and other disadvantaged students attend public schools. Estimates derived from the report on government services in 2022 show that 82% of low SES students and 83% of Indigenous students were enrolled in public schools in 2021. Moreover, 98% of all disadvantaged schools are public schools, based on figures published by the Australian Council of Educational Research. Other research based on different data shows that over 90% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. The learning of these disadvantaged students is severely hindered by inadequate resources. Data compiled in PISA 2018 reveals that 25% of public school students have their learning hindered by a shortage of teachers compared to only 2% in higher fee private schools.
20% of public school students have their learning hindered by inadequately qualified teachers compared to less than 1% in higher fee private schools. The presence of inadequately qualified teachers generally reflects the high proportion of teachers teaching out of field in public schools. 16% of public school students suffer from the lack of educational materials compared to less than 1% in higher fee schools. There are vast differences in the quality of school infrastructure. 36% of public school students are hindered by poor quality physical infrastructure compared to only 3% of high-fee private schools. Tudges Fudges are a reminder that the Liberal Party is not at all concerned about the state of public school funding. They serve to divert attention from the funding crisis in public schools. They are designed to deny public schools the funding increases needed to ensure all students received an adequate education and to improve equity in education. At present, public schools in Australia are only funded at 87% of their schooling resource standard, the SRS, while private schools are funded at 104% of their SRS. Under the current funding arrangements, public schools will only ever be funded to less than 91% of their SRS, while private schools will be funded at over 100% of their SRS to at least 2029. We urgently need a better deal for public schools. Unfortunately, the new Minister for Education, Jason Clare, was silent on the future funding of public schools in the election campaign and has remained silent since. The Albanese government has failed to provide any detailed plan to ensure that public schools are fully funded. All we have is hollow and platitudinous statements that the government will put public schools on the path of full and fair funding. This is not enough. The silence must end. Save Our Schools calls on the Minister to issue a detailed policy statement on future funding of public schools. And you can check out that article at the Save Our Schools website and it includes some charts around those figures as well. Back to you, Jean. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and thank you to Dale for the fudges from Mr Tudge. Uh, But Jeff has got another very interesting article Uh, The Catholics are asking for more and more money, particularly for so-called leaky schools. We know where the leaky schools are, of course, that need the uh, state money. But um, with election coming up, the same old tired arguments for more and more billions for private schools are in the offing. But Jeff has got an answer for all of them. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. This is one from the AEU News, the Australian Education Union. It's by Jane Caro, who, as we know, is a staunch ally of public education in Australia. And she's written a fantastic article. It's called Myths About School Funding and How to Bust Them. Every election, state and federal, is an opportunity to draw attention to the gross inequity of Australia's bizarre schools funding system. No other developed country funds schools the way we do. We are the world leader when it comes to giving public money to private fee-charging schools, and we languish near the bottom of international rankings when it comes to the percentage of education fundings we give to our public schools. Despite the stark reality, those seeking to justify the way Australia differentially funds its schools tend to fall back on the same tired old myths, and such claims can be confusing to debunk, especially in the heat of an argument. So, maybe... Having enjoyed more than my fair share of heated arguments on this subject, I can help. 
Myth number one, I pay taxes. The funding system should support my choice. We all pay taxes to fund all sorts of public services and amenities that support our community. Taxation is not a deposit account that we can draw on to buy whatever service we choose. Taxation funds all sorts of things we may never ourselves use. Ambulances we may never need. Firefighters we may never call. Roads we will never drive on. And childless taxpayers also fund schools. According to myth one, they should be able to withdraw these taxes because they do not have kids. Our taxes fund public transport, for example, but just because somebody chooses not to catch a train or a bus, we don't believe their choice or of private car should be subsidised by the taxpayer. Yet, car drivers could make many of the same arguments that private school supporters do. After all, by choosing not to use public transport, they could argue they leave more space for other communities, commuters, or that every, if everyone used public transport, the system would be overwhelmed. But it's worse than that. Given that public schools educate the vast majority of our most disadvantaged children, those who argue that fee-charging schools should be subsidised to support their choice are essentially saying that families who have no choice should subsidise those who do to buy what they perceive is an educational advantage. It is literally a case of the poor subsidising the rich so the better off can shut the children of the poor out and lock them into underfunded schools. The quick comeback is we all pay taxes for stuff we don't use. So what you're really saying is families with no choice should subsidise your choice to give your kids an advantage over theirs. That's a pretty good comeback. Okay, myth number two from Jane Caro. The federal government has invested record funding in schools. Record funding to private schools, perhaps, but not to public ones. According to a recent study, the Morrison government gave an extra 10 billion dollars to private schools while public schools remain underfunded by 6.5 billion dollars every year in fact almost every public school in australia is funded below the minimum agreed school resource standard srs while every private school in australia is funded at or above this benchmark this glaring injustice is made even worse when you consider that public schools overwhelmingly educate the most disadvantaged children. These kids are also the most expensive to teach because they need more resources to reach their potential and overcome the inevitable inequities visited upon them at birth. Which leads to the big question of what we want our education system to be, one that optimises the opportunity of educational success and social mobility for even the most disadvantaged students or one that further entrenches inequality and segregation. While our growing population always necessitates increased funding, it's true we waste a lot of school funding in Australia, but not on public schools. We waste it on already luxuriously resourced schools, often charging exorbitant fees, serving high wealth communities and enrolling students who are already doing well. The quick comeback is, Record, record funding overall, but not for public schools. Funding for private schools has been rising at eight times the rate of that for public ones. How is that fair? Oh, great, good on you, Jane. Now, myth number three, the states are responsible for funding public schools. The federal government funds private ones. When Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister, the parliament legislated an 80-20 split in school funding. It was meant to end the school funding wars. It didn't. Here's why. According to this legislation, 
the federal government is meant to provide 80% of public funding to private fee charging schools. Each state government is meant to give their private schools 20%. The reverse is true for public schools. The states provide 80%, the feds 20%. This may sound reasonable, but here is why it does not work. Most state governments, including Victoria, give less than 80% to public schools and more than 20% to private schools. Public schools enrol at least 80% of the students who are the most expensive to educate, while private schools cream off the cheaper end. This means that even if public schools were funded according to Turnbull's legislation, they would still not have enough to give their most vulnerable students the help they need. State governments are dependent on federal GST revenue for their income. It simply does not make sense to make the neediest schools dependent on the most cash, uh, on the most cash-strapped arm of government, while the most advantaged schools can depend on the richest one. Public schools in the poorest states, Tasmania and the Northern Territory, which is not a state, but anyway, enrol some of the, Australia's most disadvantaged students, and their state or territory governments simply don't have the means to give them the help they need to break the generational disadvantage. Quick comeback, she says, that's just an old hangover from Federation. How does it make sense for the neediest schools to be dependent on the most cash-strapped arm of government? Do we want our education system to optimise opportunity and social mobility or to further entrench inequality and segregation? Myth four, sending my kid to a private school saves the public purse. The system would collapse if we all sent our kids to public schools. Because private schools, with a handful of honourable exceptions, carefully choose where they will and will not open campuses and which kids they will or will not educate, all they do is remove many of the most advantaged kids from the public system. In doing this, they actively harm our public education system. Here's how. One, less kids from wealthy and middle-class backgrounds reduces the public school's ability to fundraise and reduces the number of well-educated parents who can advocate and lobby on behalf of their own children's schools and public schools in general. Two, by removing students requiring less support, they reduce the economy of scale. In other words, every middle-class kid who leaves the public system increases the ratio of needier students, thereby increasing the per-student cost. If most kids went to public schools, education would be cheaper for everyone, including governments, as well as much fairer. Three, the system would not collapse if everyone sent their kids to public schools. The rest of the world, including much higher achieving systems than ours, manages to do it perfectly well. In fact, it would be far more efficient and less wasteful. As it is, we spend far too much money on infrastructure due to our parallel systems and not enough on what goes on inside them. The quick comeback is, the rest of the world seems to manage fine. If most kids went to government schools, the public system would be better funded, much fairer, and we'd waste a lot less taxpayers' money. Myth five, the private system has the best teachers and gets better results. According to research, private schools do not do better academically. Once school results are adjusted for the differences in the socioeconomic status of the students they enrol, there is no difference in academic results between public and private schools. And arguably, public schools actually do better, especially given that they have far less money. Even more compelling is the consistent evidence showing that public school students do better at university than their private school counterparts. As for the better teachers argument, 
Firstly, all teachers have been trained at the same institutions and many of them move between the public and private systems. Secondly, many teachers elect to work in the public system precisely because they want to make the greatest possible difference. Public schools are full of people deeply committed to empowerment through education. And in my mind, that's a great basis for cultivating the creativity and critical thinking skills we know our kids need. So the quick comeback is, once you factor in student circumstances, public schools get better results and their students fare better at uni. Imagine what public schools could do if they were properly funded. Myth number six, I make sacrifices to send my child to a private school. No parent should feel they need to make sacrifices to get their child a decent education in the fourth richest country in the world. If that is true, we should all take to the streets in protest. Moreover, deciding to buy your child what you perceive as an advantage cannot be called a sacrifice. It is nothing more than a purchase decision. It's a bit like saying, I made sacrifices to buy this luxury house in a prestigious suburb so I, could, so I should get a government subsidy. The impact of making parents feel that they should, by whatever means, send their kids to a private school has been fueled by conservative governments who would be happy to send as many families as possible into the private sector, leaving a residual public system for the poor. Not only is it privatisation by stealth, it destroys one of the most precious aspects of public education, ensuring the highest quality education for every child who walks through the gates and building cohesion and connection within a diverse cross-section of each local community. And before you let someone tell you that public funding puts downward pressure on fees, it's been more than two decades since John Howard justified a substantial boost in private school funding as improving choice and affordability. And fees have done nothing but rise steadily, and in some cases rapidly since that time. Meanwhile, the proportion of disadvantaged students attending independent schools has shrunk dramatically. To sum up, most of the benefits of private education are cosmetic, more about buying status than accessing a better education. The tragedy is that Australia is the only country in the world that publicly funds the fears, insecurities and status anxieties of some parents to the detriment of all, but especially the most disadvantaged. So the quick comeback from Jane is, choosing to buy your kid what you think is an advantage can hardly be called a sacrifice. Conservative governments are basically fueling parents' fears to further their privatisation agenda. Um, and uh, Jane is a writer and a social commentator and documentary maker. Her many books include The Stupid Country, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education and What Makes a Good School. What a fabulous article. And back to you, Jean. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, but it's time for us to leave Australia and go over overseas. And this time we're going to the United Kingdom. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. This is an article by Margot Miller. The UK, money for the rich, money for war, but none for education. As the academic year in the UK begins, schools face an existential crisis in funding. School leaders already struggling to balance budgets, warn of cuts to the curriculum, staff redundancies, and increased class sizes. According to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, spending per pupil in 24-25 is expected to be 3% lower on average than in 2010. The situation is even worse in the post-16 edu post education, 
suppose 16 years education with college funding per pupil in 24, 25 at 10% below the 2010, 11 levels, while sixth form funding per pupil will be 23% lower. The funding crisis is exacerbated by inflationary pressures triggered by the government's response to the pandemic and the NATO war against Russia and Ukraine, which in which Britain is playing a, a major role in financing to the tune of billions of pounds. Rising energy bills and the recent below in, inflation 5% pay award for teachers to be financed out of existing school budgets means that schools must lay off staff to make savings. There is already a chronic staff shortage due to excessive work overload and poor pay. Richard Sheriff is the Chief Executive Officer of the Red Kite Learning Trust of 13 schools in North and West Yorkshire. He told The Guardian, in over 20 years leading schools, I've never before been faced with such a shock to our budgets. We are in the desperate position of having to look at cutting everything from school trips to teaching resources. At Pasmore's Cooperative Learning Community, a trust comprising four schools in Essex, music could be cut from the curriculum and the price of school meals increased. A rising number of children arrive at the school hungry and cold. According to the Child Poverty Action, uh, 800,000 children who live in poverty do not qualify for free school meals. Sean Maher, head teacher at Richard Challoner School in Kingston, said, I've been on various WhatsApp groups and the consensus, consensus is there's no school in the country that's going to be able to afford these pay rises that have been passed on unfunded. Schools have been given a six-month energy bill reprieve with the energy relief scheme, but still face huge bills immediately after. Bryn Thomas, the head of Wolverley CE Secondary School, told the BBC that without additional funding, the school wouldn't be forced to operate at a loss after its fixed deal on energy ended in April. If we're not protected, we're looking at a trebling of that £125,000 bill, which will mean another £250,000 will come out of the £900,000 that we have to run our school. In desperation, school leaders are appealing to parents and parent-teacher associations for donations to plug the gap, further widening the quality of education offered to children in deprived areas compared to rich. For example, a small number of parent-teacher associations can raise at least $100,000 a year, while the average raised is £9,000. A finance director at a small trust group of schools said, I'm going to the PTA AGM in a couple of weeks' time, not for specific projects, just so that we can keep our core services going. The trust sent a letter to parents asking for a £15 a month donation. Public PTA fundraising, however, has been badly hit by the pandemic. In 2021, PTAs in England, Wales and Northern Ireland were only able to raise a total of £60.8 million, half their usual amount. The plain fact is that voluntary contributions get nowhere close to bridging the growing deficit. And we know what that's like in Australia, very much the case. The Department of Education has forbidden schools restricting their hours to cope with the funding crisis, with the usual hypocritical concerns about children's education, development and well-being. The real concern is that nothing must come in the way of the accumulation of profits, which is why the government reopened schools before the pandemic was suppressed, so parents are free to go to work. On September 23rd, Chancellor Kwesi Kwarteng introduced a mini-budget saying, 
For too long in this country, we have indulged in a fight over redistribution. Now we need to focus on growth, not just how we tax and spend. The budget measures to be financed by government borrowing, in fact, represent an unprecedented redistribution of wealth to the corporations and the richest in society. According to the Resolution Foundation, someone on an annual income of £1 million will be £55,220 better off, while a worker on £20,000 will gain £157, an amount soon to be eaten up by rising, rising inflation. The budget follows the pandemic bailout in March 2020, in which the corporations received hundreds of billions. Government largesse, fully backed by the Labor Party opposition, knows no limits when it comes to houndouts to the big business. The recent subvention to the energy companies, coupled with the Prime Minister Liz Truss's commitment to spend £157 billion more on the military by 2030, is ballooning government debt. This will be paid for by increasing the exploitation of the working class and starving essential public services, including education of funding. Following the 2008 financial crisis, schools, health and public services suffered a massive austerity cuts to pay for the government's bank bailout. The pandemic revealed the resulting parlous state of essential public services, which will be further eviscerated. Apart from the decrease in national insurance contributions, which benefits top earners the most anyway, the budget offered not a penny extra to address the education funding crisis. The education unions continue to confine their response to cuts in education to futile appeals to the government. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, pleaded that the situation is really a matter for the government to address, something which it needs to do with a sense of urgency. The union's aim is to suppress a mass mobilisation of their members. They responded to the budget with criticism in words only. ASCL leader Barton said schools faced huge extra costs from national white pay awards, for which there is no additional funding and energy bills, which the government support scheme only partially addresses. Dr. Mary Boosted, a joint secretary to the National Education Union, said the government was electing to starve public services of investment and cut public sector pay while wasting billions on tax cuts for the wealthy and lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses. These measures will not provide the economic growth we need, and it is simply unjustified to claim that real terms, pay cuts for public sector workers are needed to keep inflation down. Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of the NH NAHT Union, called proposed legislation to outlaw strikes needless and unnecessary. Trade unions are already subject to stringent laws. Government should be focused on resolving the issues that cause dissatisfaction amongst workers rather than removing their ability to object. A successful struggle by educators to fight the cuts cannot be taken up by looking to these organisations. The September 4 statements of the Educators' Rank and File Safety Committee, no to another school year of mass infections, death and education cuts. Calls on educators and parents to build local rank and file committees in every school, independent of the trade union, unions. It concludes that the fight against the pandemic and the defence and expansion of state education is inextricably connected to the mobilisation of the entire working class to take political power in Britain and around the world and reorganise economic life on the base, basis of social need, that is to replace capitalism with socialism.
join the Educators Rank and File Safety Committee UK today and sign up for our newsletter. <clears throat> and they go on. So the socialists in England have clearly identified what is uh, a serious problem where wage rises for teachers have been voted for by the government, but no increase to the budget uh, is, is made to allow for it. So all the schools are having to cut away um, their normal practices in order to fund teachers' pay rises, which is just ludicrous. Anyway, back to you, Jane. Yes, well, uh, we've had a pretty full program, but we always like to end on a positive note with our great state school. Over to you, Sol. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Hoppers Crossing Secondary College. Hoppers Crossing Secondary College opened in 1984 and is a single campus co-educational school with an enrolment of approximately 1,500 students. Situated in an urban growth corridor approximately 20 minutes west of Melbourne, the college welcomes students from years 7 to 12 from Hoppers Crossing and the surrounding district. Hoppers Crossing Secondary has some innovative and challenging educational programs that they have written about on their website. The college places great importance on the development of innovative and challenging education programs through which young people recognise the value of growth through learning. This is achieved at the school through a close working partnership of staff, students, parents, and the wider community. They aim to achieve the extraordinary by providing an education which has focus on each individual student and developing their potential. Academic rigor is valued at all stages of learning and the classroom focus is on challenge, engagement, and achievement. Now I'll throw some facts and figures at you. This school has an enrollment of 1,512 students. Its ICSIA value is below average at 972. From the upper quartile, they have 5% of students. At the second highest quartile, they have 18% of their students. And the second lowest quartile, they have 16% of their students. And in the lowest quartile, the majority of their students are in this quartile with 47% of their students. So really, this school has a lot of disadvantaged families, but it also has 44% uh, of students speaking a language other than English, and it has 2% Indigenous students. The recurrent grants from the Australian government are 4.48 million, from the Victorian government, 18 million, and from fees and parental contributions, 135,000. Other private contributions are 139,000. This adds up to $15,018 per pupil, and the NAPLAN results are above average with 50% of final year students attending a university 
and 26% attending a TAFE. So that's great. Good for you, Hoppers Crossing Secondary College. There's a lot of private schools out that way too, but uh, you've been listening to the Dogs Program. But if you want to find out more about us, you can go to www.adogs.info. It's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.